Welcome back. You're watching Stockwatch with me, Zanati Guma, and joining me to take your questions this evening are Jean-Pierre Ferster from Protea Capital Management and Devon Shute from the Robay Group. If you'd like to send those questions to us, please SMS 41392 or email us at stockwatch at bdtv.co.za or tweet us at businessdaytv using the hashtag Stockwatch. Thank you so much for your time, gentlemen, and Happy New Year. Uh, so let's start off with uh, what has been happening in the markets. I mean, we started off the year and we really had a sense of optimism. We've had some encouraging data coming out of the U.S., including when the uh, some of the big banks came out with results on Friday, leaving the markets on a high. But now you're seeing red across the U.S. boards. And I'm wondering if, uh, Devin, starting with you, if Goldman Sachs has been the wake-up call. Well, I'd say it's possible. I mean, look, the, the start we've had globally in equity markets will we'll take it. It's been an, an incredibly pleasing start after quite a disappointing de December. Um, yes, I mean, I think, you know, those U.S. banks, you've got to take each case as it comes. Um, Goldman potentially being disappointing there. But but I think overall, those bank earnings are going to be coming down, despite the fact that a lot of their net interest income margins are expanding there with those those interest rates moving up. Um, yeah, I, I think it's going to de depend not only on sector by sector, but actually stock specific, how the slowing in growth in the US economy is going to affect the, the earnings of those companies. So yeah, really, really closely watched. But my sense is that although it's been a good and strong start to, to the beginning of the year, um, we still got some choppy waters ahead of us. Yeah. Um, JP, how do you play those U.S. banks right now? Do you focus on the uh, high net interest income that they're still getting right now or on the outlook for the U.S. economy? Yeah, I think the higher net interest margins are important. And as we have a normalization of interest rates around the world, one of the typical beneficiaries of that would be banks. Uh, because they've been suppressed in terms of the type of, of margins that they could earn. Uh, I think together with that, the non-interest income will be important. Mm -hmm. So in the case of Goldman and some of the other investment banks that they've reported, they're always the first to report uh, in every quarter. Um, the fees have, have, have relatively been uh, uh, stable, let's call it. So that tells you that even the non-interest uh, type of, of, uh, of income that they uh, earn, is decent. So given that, I would say that I think banks, international global banks, uh, are quite attractive in general. They have been trading at steep discounts to their tangible NAV, mostly because of interest rates being so low and the suppression of their net interest margins. And now that things are normalizing, you can foresee that for most of these banks, their ROEs will trend upwards. And it will probably start to sustainably exceed their cost of equity. And if that is the case, you can justify evaluation above the tangible book value of these banks. So I do think that after more than 10 years of depressed earnings and depressed valuations in the banking sector globally, uh, we are on the cusp of some brighter days ahead. Yeah, of course, um, we do have the markets now really believing that the Fed will slow down. Of course, we are seeing evidence of that with the inflation figures and uh, hoping for a pivot uh, into rate cuts in uh, at least the second half of this year. So, I mean, just the pressure that we're seeing then from these earnings, could that be, maybe be short-lived so long as the market does believe the story um, of the Fed pivoting? 
towards the end of the year. So we could basically just kind of shrug off the kind of uh, pressure that we are seeing now and kind of believe that it's short term compared to the longer term prospects when it comes to the Fed, Devin? Look, Anati, I think the, the, the key there is what the tightening monetary policy that the Fed has implemented so aggressively last year and will continue in the beginning of this year is going to do to economic growth and how that filters down to corporate earnings. I mean, you know, this is the most anticipated recession um, probably ever on record. And I, get the, I guess the question will be, how deep is that slowdown in growth? Um, the, the Fed is really talking tough at the moment and hawkish as they probably should. But history shows that they're actually prone to cut those interest rates very quickly once the economy actually enters a recession. So, you know, markets are, are forward-looking mechanisms and, and they are going to really try try time this closely. And I guess that's, you know, the, the, the billion-dollar question for all investors at the moment is, is just when that uh, potential inflection point is. Is it when there's a, a pivot or a pause or, or whatever you want to call it? Um, there, there's, there's a lot, lot to look at. I mean, the, the yield curve is is heavily inverted there at the moment um that's that's pointing to a recession uh the the labor market is quite resilient so it's giving the fed leeway to to continue this this tighter policy uh you know we haven't seen the impact of of rentals coming down yet in the inflation numbers so a lot of variables a lot of unknowns and and i think the first half of this year we're going to see a lot of those play out and, and set the course for the second half which potentially could be lining up for quite a nice recovery phase for some growth assets. Yeah. The Asian markets, um, talking about an inflection point, uh, the Chinese economy, the Asian markets weren't really pleased uh, with the uh, 3% growth for 2022 that China did post. But I get the sense that um, that's maybe different from how investors are seeing it because I've been getting quite a positive uh, sentiment on the Chinese economy. Uh, JP, um, is that linked to the actual uh, GDP for 2022 maybe being more than what markets had anticipated? Or is this maybe a more forward-looking sentiment that actually we are now out of the woods? Yeah, I think it's more of the latter. I think it's important that when we look at economic data that is being released, that is by definition backward-looking, while the market is forward-looking. So you also have this typical thing that uh, you can't wait till economic data improves or when interest rates turn, whether up or down. By that time, the market has anticipated it probably for three to six months before that point yeah. and has already moved. So if you look at, for instance, at um, say the, the Golden Dragon Index uh, in the US, that is an index of Chinese stocks, um, that has already turned. That reached the bottom roughly three months ago and is up very sharply. And we're only now seeing that potentially the economic data might drop. So again, for investors who play the timing game, it is so difficult to try and anticipate not only what is going to happen in future, but to anticipate what other people are going to anticipate is going to happen in future. Mm. And that's a game that most people don't have a winning record, which is much different to making calls that are right 50-50% of the time. Versus investors who maybe take a longer term view and say and admit, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know when things are going to turn. Yeah. I just know that in absolute terms, currently valuations are either on the cheap side or the, or the expensive side. And they make the investments decisions based on that. And I'm more in that camp because I don't think anyone can consistently, accurately uh, uh, forecast a, 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 a big movement and a big uh, turning point in economic data.
There's an email on China here. The China bashers on your show have been proved completely wrong. <laughs> Shares like Alibaba, Tencent and Process have been phenomenal investments since October last year, with Process nearly doubling in value. I would reiterate Warren Buffett's idea of buying when many are fearful. And I always find that the focus is only on the negatives about China. Balanced views are needed as the China story has many positives. People ignoring the soon-to-be largest economy in the world do so at their own peril. China is an outstandingly good story. <laughs> Devin, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think in, in defense of the, the, the China bashes, you know, with, with hindsight looking back to October, it, it was obvious to JP's point that, that things were, were, from a valuation perspective, really cheap. Um, but, you know, you cast your mind back to that. There, there was really serious questions around um, investing in China, around the governance, around the, the regulatory environment, around the, the clampdown on tech. And, and there were a lot of, there were a lot of question marks. But... The valuations were compelling. The Chinese economy was in a completely different stage in their economic cycle. I mean, they have low inflation. They've got the ability to actually ease monetary policy right now. Um, but the last three months have been spectacular. You know, JP said it in the, in the index that he alluded to, um, up significantly. China tech, and Tencent is included in this, is has almost doubled in three months so there, there there was definitely a low base that that investors could benefit from and and i think the the chinese economic recovery will continue to be a macro story for 2023 notwithstanding this single data point that's lower than history but you know better than economists forecast there's the the, the chinese economy is, is is undergoing some fundamental and structural shifts away from infrastructure and uh, real estate into consumption and common prosperity and and that will will have winners and losers but ultimately we we think it's going to drive significant growth in that economy which which you know where was 12 percent of the u.s economy 20 years ago it's now 80 percent of the u.s economy and catching fast uh, jp i mean with those significant uh, fundamental shifts that are coming from china and stimulus and 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 the like do you think that that's a complete turnaround and that we can completely ignore the uncertainty that the market has faced for the last while? So I would just say, I don't think there's been a fundamental turnaround. I think there's been a sharp turnaround in sentiment towards okay. the fundamentals. And it's, it's important to differentiate between the two. So people's view of China has moved sharply between October and today. Mm. But the fundamentals, I don't think has changed that much. We had the fact that Xi Jinping was then uh, 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 confirmed for another term, uh, unprecedented third term, and we mo more recently heard that uh, things like Didi can be back on the on the app store in China, but those data points I don't think show a fundamental shift. So I do think it's it's important to realize that when you have shares doubling in three months' time, chances are it's not a fundamental shift because fundamentals don't do that in three months' time. Fundamentals are like a big ship that takes a long time to turn. But sentiment, sentiment turns on a dime. And that is what happened here. So the fundamentals, I think, are slightly better today. I think the political situation is, is more uh, appreciated. People understand a bit more what's happening. Mm. It looks like the risk of an of a imminent 
invasion of Taiwan and what that mean for might mean for geopolitics is has also decreased as a as a as a probability that might happen because of how the war has gone in the Ukraine. And all of these things are are potentially slightly to the positive for the fundamentals, but they were extremely positive for sentiment. Yeah. Before we go to a break, uh, just uh, lastly on the China story, Devin, uh, with the reopening, is this then the return of commodities? Look, it, there, there's definitely indications that it, it could be. Um, I, I think that Chinese economy is is very commodity dependent, even although they they're moving away from that kind of primary economy. I, I think you know you've seen some softness come into the commodities end of last year. I think there is the possibility that that those will start to catch a bit again, and that that could open up a a whole nother discussion around investment focus outside of the U.S. You know that that was a very dominant theme leading up, you know, through COVID and 2021, 2022 was not a good year for U, U.S. equities or bonds for that matter, and and so now you're starting to see some some markets outside of that. I mean, the the JSE and FTSE 100 in the UK have both hit record highs this year. That that's interesting. The euro area is quite key. So yes, I I think commodities could be a beneficiary of it, and there are some other markets that could also look to benefit from a, a kind of ex-US theme. JP, quickly, uh, commodity plays that you'd be looking at with this reopening? Well, there's push and pull because you have China now reopening, but the rest of the world slowing down. The one area that's mm. still interesting to me is energy, given what's happening again in Ukraine. We've had a very warm winter so far in Europe, so energy prices, whether it's coal or oil, are actually lower, natural gas as well. And uh, if there's any cold snap and there's no resolution soon in that war, I think people might reassess uh, energy because we, we need energy uh, for, for world growth. And it's been so long that we haven't reinvested in, in carbon-based uh, in energy that I think there's a structural shortage still there. So that's the area of commodities I've been. And there's a question here. Which are the best ETFs covering energy and tech stocks on the global market to invest in, uh, preferably available on the JSC. Uh, JP? So um, I, I think it's important to, to realize that uh, I am a stock picker. So when you talk about ETFs, you're talking about a basket of stocks. Uh -huh. So if you talk about the best ETFs, I assume one says the one that might offer the best value. And to work that out, the way that I would approach it is to look at the weights of the different individual companies in the ETF, do evaluation of those individual companies, weigh that valuation according to the weights of those companies in the ETF, and then decide which ETF might be undervalued. But I would actually prefer to pick my own five stocks, say, in the energy sector yeah. versus an energy ETF that might have a lot more stocks. Some of those individual stocks might be overvalued, some might be undervalued. So I'm watering down how attractive my basket of stocks are by choosing a pre-selected basket by an EDF provider. The other way to think about it is to say you want certain exposure because of a theme, so whether it's energy or tech or whatever. And then it depends on your personal preference what theme you want to have uh, uh, exposure to. In the energy sector, you could have exposure to energy equipment. Uh, the, the people who build the, 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 the pipelines and the energy um, extraction type facilities, or the pipelines, which is more a transport business and a utility than anything else, or in oil, or in natural gas. So uh, one must keep in mind that uh, an ETF 
is just a basket of pre-selected individual securities. Yeah, I would imagine in uh, at least the last year, if uh, you uh, had a tech ETF, uh, you got quite a beating. Um, Devon, would this be a great time to get into tech stocks and particularly a basket of tech, of tech stocks like an ETF? Look, I, I, th I think, uh, again, you know, you're, you're, buy you're buying a, a predetermined group to JP's point, which was really well made. I mm. think also where the hiking cycle is not over, and, and I think that's had a really detrimental effect to these long duration tech stocks. So, so my, my sense is it's likely a bit early. There's still a lot of uncertainty in that regard. Those companies have fallen significantly but they would, they, their starting valuations were, you know, on average very high. So it's not to say that they can't still get cheaper. So I, I don't necessarily think it's an obvious trade. You're seeing, if you're talking about themes, the, the, the tech stocks fit in the kind of growth bucket, but you've, you've had the, the value bucket, which has been really out of favor for a long time, um, start to reemerge. And it, it's possible that that continues. So... I'm not giving a conclusive answer, but but I think there is risk to to just taste chasing uh, big cap tech at this stage. Yeah, just on tech, um, JP, are you paying any uh, close attention to uh, OpenAI and um, Chat GPT because there's been quite a buzz even at WIF. Um, of course, uh, Microsoft plowed in ten billion dollars into OpenAI, and of course, Chat GPT now is seen as um, a player that could kind of chip away at the dominance of Google. Uh, are you paying close attention to that and how it could affect Google? Mm, yes, I am indeed because. What has been shown the last, say, uh, 15 years is that no one has been able to really dent Google's dominant position or Alphabet's dominant position with Google Search and Google AdWords. And um, the closest we got was Meta tried within Facebook to have some, site, some type of search functionality. And I hear these days that uh, young people use TikTok and rather search for all kinds of topics within TikTok and don't use Google. So I hear. <laughs> now, um, it's going to be interesting to see if uh, Microsoft is successful with this more uh, AI and voice and uh, interactive-based search uh, using artificial intelligence. They said they're going to integrate it with their Azure uh, service, which is going to be fascinating to see the benefits of that. And it could improve the Bing service, which up until now has been a very poor competitor to Google Search and Google AdWords. So one, one must stand up and notice these things because, you, you know, it's similar to some of the other questions that we've had tonight. Mm. A year from now, something might have happened in the coming 12 months and then we'll say, oh, it was so obvious. Yeah. It was so obvious that Google is going to halve in price and it's going to lose a lot of its market share because of chat GPT. Yeah. But as we said here today, I think it's important to realize that it's always more difficult to see what's through a dirty windscreen to forecast the future versus to have a look in the clear rearview mirror to see what has happened. And I think chat GPT and what it might mean and the risk it might mean and the threat it might pose to Google is one example. It's interesting to follow, but it's very difficult to forecast exactly what might happen if it is a significant risk for Alphabet.
Yeah, they must get their act together, though, because I, I have uh, uh, put in quite a few questions, interesting questions, and it's actually quite fascinating, the answers it comes up with. But now, I've been trying to log on for the past two days, and they've been saying that they're over capacity. All <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> right, let's move on. Uh, there's a question here on uh, Steinhoff. Is it the end of the road for Steinhoff? Devon? Look, uh, I, I think JP might be in a better position to answer that than I am. But I, I mean, I don't, I don't see much value for uh, normal equity shareholders at this stage. I, I think that there's just too much ongoing de destruction. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just been a really painful journey for those that have stuck it out to, to try to realize something. But, you know, if, you, if you're looking to deploy new capital in there, I mean, my answer would be no. Yeah. JP, I suspect you might have the same answer. You, your suspicion might be correct. As an <laughs> um, what I would say is, you know, we, we, this whole, there's, there's an interesting theme of the show, and that's the theme of themes. Mm. So everyone likes a turnaround story. And everyone thought, wow, Steinhoff has fallen so much, 99%. Surely it can be a turnaround. Let's buy the shares. But there's a big difference between buying into a theme and doing the detailed work and understanding what's actually happening in the details. Yeah. And in Steinhoff, because you have so much debt versus the asset side of the balance sheet, which has not grown to offset that debt, the company is technically insolvent. Uh, tonight, as we are speaking, they're doing a placement of 6% of their Pepco shares in Poland. That is because they have no other cash and they have a lot of fees and things to pay. So now they are further shrinking the asset side of the balance sheet and the debt's still there. Mm. So I think shareholders will, will be voting sometime this year to be diluted by 80%. And then sign off all D-list. So those who are buying it now are effectively saying they're comfortable to be minority shareholders in an unlisted business registered in the Netherlands. Good luck to them. I think for most of African shareholders, that's not an appetizing position to be in. Yeah. All right. Uh, talking about turnaround stories, there's a question here on EOH. I've been holding the stock for five years and I got a lot of money of 800K on the stock. Currently, it is down by 50%. Please, can you advise how the outlook for this, uh, yeah, on the outlook for this in future? I'm happy to hold it for the next five more years, but will it be a good solution? Of course, uh, they came out today with an update of their interim period. Um, I mean, they, they seem to be making good strides, but also they are going for that capital raise where uh, that includes a 500 million uh, rights offer. Devon, should, uh, yeah, yeah, should the viewer be holding this for the next five years? It's a it's a difficult one. I mean, this was this was a half flying stock not so not so long ago. Um, you know, just was was sprawling bolt on acquisition after bolt on acquisition. It it just got away from them. There 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 were some you know also un, untoward business dealings, and and so the company is embarked in a process of really cleaning itself up. It's it's done a fantastic job in paying down the debt. I think I think the debt has has halved. Um, you know, since they've really taken an X to it. But they still need to repair the balance sheet. And so this capital raise is very necessary for them, you know, to, to continue to try to grow their way out of it. Um, and I think the, jury, the jury's out on, on whether they're going to succeed on this. I think it is uphill battle. Uh, I, I think, you know, they, they're going for equity funding as opposed to, to debt for, uh, you know, in the capital structure because of the high interest rates at the moment, I, I would guess. They, they, there's, there's just a lot of hard work, and, and I think there are probably easier places to, to deploy capital than there right now. Ah, all right. So, well, let's quickly get to your stock picks. Gentlemen, JP, what will it be for today? 
Sure. I'm picking a stock listed in France, in Paris, called Trigano. It is Europe's largest leisure vehicle manufacturer. So they make caravans and motorhomes specifically, camping equipment and some garden equipment. And uh, if you think about it, after lockdowns, a lot of people wanted to get out of the house. And a lot of businesses offered work from home solutions to their employees. So you had a surge of people wanting to buy caravans and camper vans and, and live the van life and, uh, and work from, from anywhere and uh, travel around their country and see a bit of their country. And you see that in Europe as well. Trigano has benefited from that. But I think that they will continue to benefit because this is a long-term trend. Uh, you don't know, now only have retired people uh, getting in the camper van or hacking, uh, putting the caravan at the back of the car and going for a nice holiday. You have younger people doing that as well. So the trends are very positive. It's a company with very decent returns on their capital. They've, uh, they have consolidated the industry. They're now one of the major players and the biggest player in Europe. Uh, so I like Trigono shares at the current share price. Oh, I wish I could do a broadcast from a caravan. Uh, Devin, <laughs> what will it be on your side? <laughs> <laughs> me, me too. So, 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 so my pick is, is something we've discussed before in the show. It's the iShares 20-year plus US Treasury bond ETF, code TLT. And the, the reason for this is if you, know, you, you think what we had went through last year is US bonds had an unprecedented sell-off it also meant that the 60-40 balance portfolio in the US, 60 equities, 40 fixed income, had its worst calendar year in 150 years. And they've never both declined by double digits. So we really had some huge value coming through there. It looks like inflation has now peaked in the US and it's likely that bond yields have also peaked. So, you know, as the Fed does begin to ease whenever that is, and if it is more aggressive, these ETFs could be particularly well positioned and give investors significant total return potential with the attractive current yields, as well as possible capital appreciation if those yields continue to compress. All right. Well, thanks so much, gentlemen, for your time and for your analysis today. Uh, Jean-Pierre Fester is from Protea Capital Management and Devin Shoot from the Robay Group. Julieta is back with Stockwatch tomorrow night.